Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I've got a really interesting interview show for you today. Uh, last week, we talked about the collections one through five, these massive, massive data dumps that uh, came apparently from a lot of historical recent data dumps back as far as a few years. Nevertheless, a just a massive amount of information, email addresses and passwords mostly, that has been dropped onto the quote-unquote dark web. And one of the things I mentioned last week, in fact, the tip of the week, was to go to a website called haveibeenpwned.com. The person who runs this site, Troy Hunt, from Australia, as it turns out, has gone to the massive trouble of gathering together as much of this information as possible and presenting it in a single uh, website where you can enter your email address or even enter your password to see if they show up in this in all these lists that have come out, all these data breaches that have been published, and basically to find out if you were affected. And the main thing, of course, is not even so much just if your information was found in one of the breaches for a particular company, but what really would be the problem is if you reused that password somewhere else. And the bad guys know that we like to reuse our passwords, so they take these lists and they may initially try to break into the the website or the web service where password and was used initially, but failing that, they may then take that and almost surely will take that and try many other sites as well to see if you happen to reuse that password somewhere else. So after I recommended that, I immediately thought, hey, I should see if I could get this guy on the show. And sure enough, I reached out to Troy and he immediately responded and we set up an interview and here we are. Today, Troy will be our guest. Uh, it's a really, really interesting discussion. Troy has some very interesting perspectives on all of these data breaches and how we could be protecting ourselves and what causes them and who's to blame and all those sorts of things. So uh, it's an excellent interview. I can't wait to get to that. But before we do, I don't want to make you wait any longer. It's time to announce the winners of the Pod Centennial Contest. Of course, two weeks ago was my 100th podcast episode, which was a huge deal. And I wanted to celebrate that by giving away some stuff. And we did that. We held it for a week. And I wanted to, you know, I want to make sure we got plenty of applicants. So I held it off for one more week. And now we can finally announce the winners. Now, the way I'm doing this is there were five winners, and all five winners are, are, are going to get a copy, a signed copy of my book and a signed copy of Bruce Schneier's Click Here to Kill Everybody. Bruce was our guest on that show. It was very fitting, and he graciously agreed to provide some signed copies of, of his book as well. Uh, so every, all five winners are going to get that. Now, there were two other selections of books. A-Press, my publisher, donated a handful of books uh, on cybersecurity to give away, and I handpicked some of my favorite cybersecurity and privacy books as well. Uh, and the way this is going to work is that the top winner will get uh, their first choice from those two bundles, the A-Press bundle and my hand-picked bundle. Uh, then once they've made their choice, I will give the remaining books to the second winner, and they will have their choice, and so on, uh, down to the, the last winner. The last winner will, of course, not, not have much of a choice at that point, but they're all good books. And, of course, everybody gets the signed copies of the books, so everyone's a winner. So here are the winners in reverse order. Jim from Sydney, Australia. Chris from Hanover, Germany. Ryan from Baltimore, Maryland, Chris from Clinton, Connecticut, and the number one grand prize winner is Steve from Northville, Michigan. Congratulations to all of you. Uh, look for an email from me shortly. I'll be reaching out to you where you can fill out the information and tell me how to send you your stuff. Steve, of course, being the top winner, he's special. He also will get a t-shirt from DuckDuckGo and some stickers, and everybody else will get everything I just mentioned. So <laughs> lots of great stuff uh, and worth quite a bit, actually. So uh, thank you to everybody for uh, listening and participating. If you like the whole contest thing, I may do that again in the future. Um, open to feedback. And as always, you can send me feedback at carry at 
All right, now let's get to our wonderful interview with Troy Hunt, who's also from Australia, as it turns out, about his website, HaveIBeenPwned.com. All right, Troy Hunt is a Microsoft Regional Director and a Most Valuable Professional Awardee for Developer Security. He's a blogger, international speaker, and author of several online courses, and the run, uh, person who runs Have I Been Pwned. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, we just talked about uh, Have I Been Pwned recently, and actually I've mentioned it on the show several times, so I'm really glad to have you on the show to explain what this is all about and uh, how people can best use your service. And I've got plenty of other questions. So but let's start with the main <laughs> one. Uh, tell us about your website. You know, Have I Been Pwned? How did that come to be? And then, of course, probably for this audience's sake, what is it, what is Pwned? Yeah, hey, let's start with the last bit first uh, because that's that's the fun one. So, so pwned is sort of a little bit of a colloquialism, which is a misspelling of owned. And it, look, I guess it's been used a lot in things like video games where someone frags the other person and ha-ha, I owned you sort of thing. So it, it tends to be used a little bit when some kind of misfortune befalls <laughs> a victim. Uh, and a, a bit of misfortune that unfortunately befalls many of us these days is we end up in a data breach. So Have I Been Pwned is a publicly searchable list of data breaches. And if you've appeared in one of these data breaches, you can go to Have I Been Pwned, plug in your email address, and it says, hey, uh, let, let's say like me, you have been in the Dropbox data breach, in the LinkedIn data breach. Uh, and it helps people understand where they've been exposed on the internet. And how did, how did you come to make this site? Like, I know that you, you know, obviously you said you were affected yourself. Maybe that's what drove you to do this. But what what brought you to create this site? Well, the, the catalyst for it was in late 2013. I think it was about October 2013, Adobe had a data breach. Uh, and I was in the Adobe data breach. Actually, I was in there twice. My personal email address and my work email mm. address. Uh, and that was a pretty large incident. And there were a bunch of other incidents around the time that were a lot smaller. And I think from memory, Adobe was in like 150 million records, and there are a few others that were sort of around a million or something. And I'd been doing a bunch of analysis on on breaches to, to try and learn a bit more about people's behaviors when it comes to things like how they create accounts. Uh, so, for example, turns out a lot of people use the same password every day. And, <laughs> yes. and we, can, we can demonstrate this emphatically when we have the data from multiple different systems and the same person appears in each one. Mm. Uh, Adobe was interesting, too, because they, they actually encrypted passwords but then they had password hints, which weren't encrypted. So you'd look at the password hint, and it's like my dog's name. Well, there's not a whole lot of options there, you know, in, in the yeah. realm of different possibilities. Uh, and by the way, I can go to your Facebook and figure out your dog's name really quickly. Anyway, yes. So it was really interesting to sort of see this data out there. And the, the, the sort of, I guess, the epiphany that I had at the time is it's like most people don't know where they've been exposed. So let's create a service to help them figure it out. All right. So... How do you get this information? First of all, what is a data breach? Just let's let's cover that. What is it? What does it mean to, for your data to be breached? And then, how do you come across this, that information? So the, the strict definition is where there's been data exposed to unauthorized parties. Uh, so typically, within have I been pwned? Data breaches are someone has found either a vulnerability in a system. So there's been some bad coding that's given them access to the database. Many times it's a misconfiguration as well. So there's a database out there and it doesn't have a password on it. Uh, even just this morning, I was looking at one where someone has published all of their data to a publicly facing website and it's just in a directory listing. So it's literally like, here is a list of all the data, go for it. It can also be cases where someone uh, accesses data and redistributes it in an unauthorized fashion. So we had a bit of news here a couple of days ago 
uh, where someone working for a major financial institution had just started copying data and had taken it home with them and was inevitably going to use it for nefarious purposes. So that's not necessarily a vulnerability in a system, that's just someone abusing their position of power. And this available and this data is taken by the hackers or whoever it's taken by, and it's put where and how do you get a hold of it? So it goes to a variety of different places, and it, it, it really sort of depends. In, in some cases, it's taken by hackers, and then it's kept very private. Uh, now, what do they do with it when it's private? Well, they could do anything from use that information to try and access people's accounts. So they might log into the account and gain access to anything from financial records to personal messaging. They might use that data on other accounts because people do tend to reuse their passwords. Mm -hmm. So they'll say, hey, you know, look, I've just got, you know, let's say it's your LinkedIn uh, email address and password. I'm now going to go and log into your eBay because you use the same password. And once they're in the eBay, maybe they'll go and purchase goods under this person's identity uh, and then ship those to a location where they can then convert them into cash. So there's certainly the, the sort of the, the private socialization of this data. One of the things that, that I never really understood the, the extent of before I started this project is how much data is just socialized and traded between individuals. And what I mean by that is that there are people sitting on literally thousands of different individual data breaches that just share them with their mates. It's like, hey, I've got, you know, let's say the Plex data breach. I was in the Plex data breach because I used the Plex media service and their forum had a data breach and someone will say, you know, I've got that. Would you like it? Uh, yeah, what can you give me? And they exchange it. A little bit like they might exchange baseball cards or, or, or something, but <laughs> unlike baseball cards, it's digital. So yeah. it, it, doesn't, it doesn't sort of, it, it's not a constant state of numbers. It replicates over and over and over again. And, it, and this is on like the dark web, or are there? And if so, what? Explain to me what the dark web is, and <laughs> and do they charge for this data? Do you have to pay for this data when you get it for your site? So the the dark web, first of all, is is something that's not quite as scary as it sounds. In fact, mm -hmm. I always have a lot of fun when when people sort of say, "Oh, yeah, I've heard about the dark web. Sounds very scary." And, and I'll say, well, "Okay, let me show you what the dark web is." Now, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I was with a friend of mine, and, and she said, "Look, I've never seen the dark web. I, you know, this sounds kind of scary and mysterious. Can you show me?" And I said, "All right, here's what the dark web is. You download the Tor browser bundle for free off the normal internet." Now you're on the dark web, and it looks just like the clear web. And the, and the only difference is your connection is routed through multiple hops, and both the client and the server are anonymous. So without some form of decloaking, which, which is another story altogether, you're effectively anonymous as you're browsing the internet, and the services which you're running behind that are anonymous as well. Now, we, we often sort of hear the dark web being referred to in the context of things like underground drug markets. Mm -hmm. you know, there's certainly a lot of drugs. Sites like the Silk Road were very infamous for that. And certainly digital goods are exchanged on these services too. You can go and buy data breaches. But equally, a huge amount of data is just sitting there on the clear web. And you know, what I mean by that is that there are all sorts of everything from sort of forums to just collections of data in, in stashes and folders that are accessible via your normal browser. Uh, I've seen, particularly over the last couple of weeks, a huge amount of data being socialized via Twitter. You know, like this hmm. is not the dark web. This is one of the world's biggest social media platforms. Click the link. Here's a billion, five billion, oh twelve billion records of people's email addresses and passwords. And to your question about paying for it, there are certainly people that sell this data. I've always taken the position that I think paying for this data, regardless of of the potential illegalities of that, and I'm sure there are mm. some depending on your jurisdiction, is not the right thing to do because it incentivizes criminal activity. Uh, you know, sure. If I go and pay someone for a data breach and they go, well, hang on a moment, so if I come up with data, I can make money from it. 
Uh, and their moral compass is, is possibly aligned such that they'll go and try and find data in other places, and it just makes the whole thing worse. Sure, yeah. So, you know, like these other folks, you're, you're, you know the nooks and crannies to look in, and you're kind of, you know, surfing around and uh, hanging around some of these same places that these are, this data is trafficked, and you just download what you can for free, and that's what you make available on your site to, for searching for people to find out if they've been part of this data breach? Yeah, and, and, and to be clear, these days, in fact, to be honest, not too long after I started the project, there are so many people that popped up and said, you know, look, we sort of support what you do. We think it's a good idea. Mm. Let us send you data. So it's very rare these oh, days nice. for me to actually go out looking for things, which which is very convenient for Oh, me. sure, yeah. People will pop up and send it to me, and it's, it's, it's pretty much a daily basis. Someone says, look, here's some data, and it might be anything from a 1,000 records through to you know, recently over a billion records. Uh, and they, these people just pop up out of the woodwork. Sometimes it's, it's the same suspects over and over again. Sometimes they're very uh, mainstream white hat security researchers that want to be publicly recognized. Mm. Other times it is probably people that were very, very close to illegally taking the data in the first place. You know, may, maybe it was the person. I try yeah. not to ask too many sure, questions, sure. if I'm honest. So uh, we, we hear about them all the time now. They're on, they're on the, the news and, and it, the they don't, qualify things too much in the, in the news as far as usually what you hear is like the number like the how bad it is depends on how many records there mm. were but in mm. your opinion which were what are the real worst data breaches and either historically or just uh qualitatively speaking what is you know what are the really worst data breaches and um that we've had you know i guess historic let's, let's start with historically what were some of the worst ones and why and you know, does the news get it right when they report these things? Because it seems to me like they overhype a lot of things. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. There are certainly there are certainly media outlets out there, and, and in particular, some journalists out there that specialise in this area, and and they are just fantastic at objectively reporting, uh, and they understand the technology and they understand the implications. But by the same token, there's a lot of media out there, particularly once it becomes consumer-facing and it's journalists who you know, may not specialise in the area. Mm-hmm. The, the things do tend to get misrepresented. But, but in terms of, of what makes a data breach a severe thing and what are some of the notable ones in the past, I guess there's different ways of looking at it. And, and certainly the most obvious one is the number of records. Mm-hmm. But the number of records alone can be a pretty poor metric. So recently, uh, we're going back about a few weeks before recording, I, I loaded a, a data breach into Have I Been Pwned that had 733 million records, mm-hmm. which was the single largest one I'd ever ever put in there. And this was a collection of email addresses and passwords from many different data breaches. Now, that was very noteworthy in terms of the volume because you know, three quarters of a billion is rather yeah. a large number. Yes. But it's... Only email addresses and passwords, which you know, on the one hand doesn't expose any, say, sensitive, personally identifiable information. Mm. On the other hand, this is stuff that will get you into other accounts. So that's quite serious. But then a lot of the data was old as well. And, and sort of the real world impact of that w- was notable, but not severe. Now, at the other end of the scale, if we take something like Ashley Madison back in 2015, so this is the website designed for people to have an affair. In fact, their strapline was, life is short, have an affair. Right, yeah. And they had a data breach with over 30 million people in it. Now, that's a lot smaller than 700, what was it, 733 uh, million. But... It is people who were out there explicitly looking for affairs. So obviously there's going to be social stigma and moral judgment and everything there. 
It had information that was personally sensitive, uh, things like sexual orientation, uh, fantasies, you, you know, like mm-hmm. things that are really, really deeply personal. Yeah. Uh, as well as things like payment card information as well. So it had payment records in there uh, from people that actually bought access to the service. And the impact of that was everything from many, many different people losing jobs because they were now outed. There are lots of services that popped up and made the data publicly searchable. Uh, in fact, that was the first time I went, look, there are some classes of data that just should not be publicly searchable. Yeah. Uh, but there are many services out there that did that. There were people like literally posting to their community bulletin boards oh, wow. in paper, like stuck to a court board. You know, here's a list of the people in our community that were on this site. Oh, wow. So, you know, some pretty serious shaming. Uh, and there were people that killed themselves. So in, in terms of impact, like that's about as severe as you can get. And I, yeah. I can't think of another incident that's come even close to that in terms of the real world impact on a, on a broad number of people. Yeah, very good point. Now, do we, do we have any idea, do state actors get involved at this level? Or do we know if they're either buying and or selling this information at the, you know, uh, probably our government or China or Russia or whoever, the, the <laughs> pick your boogie All man. the usual suspects, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, look, I mean, what we do know, and particularly over the last probably two and a half years, as you guys approach the 2016 election, the, the whole sort of premise of state hacking became a much more mainstream mm-hmm. uh, headline. And uh, look, at being very rational about it, it makes sense <laughs> when you think about it, because you think about the number of connected systems that we have online, and think about the amount of critical infrastructure which is connected. And all of this runs on the internet. Like this is the sort of stuff that state actors definitely want to get access to. Now either they want to get access because they want to understand more about things like the way the way corporations are, are planning their products. We see a lot about corporate espionage lately. Mm. Uh, there certainly has been a lot of discussions between the US and China in particular about that. We also see a genuine interest in wanting to have control of critical infrastructure. And, and as a result, we see governments getting very cautious about things like using Chinese products in, say, 5G networks is one yeah. of the topics at the moment. Uh, so in many parts of, of the West world, the likes of, of Huawei and ZTE uh, are out as, uh, as contenders for critical infrastructure, which of course then makes it very, very hard because these are the guys that are actually producing some of the best hardware out there mm. at really cost-effective prices too. <laughs> so right. That, yeah, yeah. That, that becomes very difficult. Uh, and then of course the whole election hacking thing where we sort of went, well, it, it, it's kind of, it, it's hacking, but not in the obnoxious, we have all your data or control of your systems. This is now trying to manipulate public perception in really, really subtle ways sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's sort of equal parts fascinating and scary. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, in today's age, data brokers are now a thing. Uh, there are, you know, I saw an estimate somewhere there's 2,500 or 4,000 of these just in the U.S. alone. Um, but do we know, are these are they, are these data brokers, companies, databases being hacked and stolen as well? And if so, how, how would we know? I mean, if, you know, if Target or Equifax, somewhere I'm a kind of a direct customer of gets hacked, mm, you know, they will mm. often notify me. These data brokers, sir, as heck, are going to tell me, you know, you know, I had a whole bunch of stuff on you. And by the way, it just got hacked. Well, the, the brokers is a really interesting one because there's a whole spectrum of legitimacy there. Uh, and and f- <laughs> frankly, if I'm honest, I, I think the whole spectrum is a little bit shady in, in mm. the, the same sort of common ways insofar as they have a huge amount of our data without us necessarily knowing about it. And no, like burying it on page 50 of your terms and conditions is not us knowing about right, it. Right, right. <laughs> but, but hey, we did say we read them all and we agreed mm, to them before we signed right. up to our service. So we're seeing everything from on the most shady side of things, services which aggregate huge amounts of data and sell them 
with a pretty explicit intent of disadvantaging the people that are in there. So, for example, <laughs> uh, the, the data being used for account takeover attempts because you're sharing the username and password. Through to really mainstream stuff. I mean, we saw uh, Dun & Bradstreet uh, had a data breach a couple of years ago with a service called Net Prospects. Uh, and Net Prospects was just a whole bunch of data used for, if you look at the headlines on a lot of these sort of mainstream quasi above board uh, service it'll be like optimize your revenue pipeline and enhance economies of scale like it'll just it'll just be full of words from you know like marketing handbooks oh yeah mm-hmm. and and what they're trying to do is create like really rich profiles of people that can be used for for better targeting and of course the more personal information they have the better other organizations can target you. you know, like if they understand what you like to eat for breakfast, they can target you in a way that they that they wouldn't be able to if they didn't know that information. And the, the, the thing that I really lament is just how many of these there are. I mean, I was in one the other day. My own personal address was in one from a company called Apollo. Uh, now, Apollo.io apparently had my data. I had no idea why they had my data. And when I really started probing and drilling down into it, there was another service I use. I use a service called New Relic. I use it as part of the yeah. monitoring for Have I Been Pwned. And New Relic used Apollo as part of the service that they delivered to me, and they gave my data to Apollo. And I probably agreed to it in the terms and conditions, but now suddenly it's like, who's, who are these Apollo guys, and why do they have my data? Along with the data of tens of millions of other people. So let's ask the fundamental question. Why are these breaches happening in the first place? Why is it that these that so many companies cannot seem to protect our data. Is it is it that hard to do or are they doing it wrong? Look, I think it's a little bit of, of both to, to different degrees. Um, you, you know, there are certainly cases where we see, uh, like I said earlier on, like coding flaws. So, for example, there are flaws like uh, SQL injection flaws. We, we've had around for more than a decade, uh, broadly considered the number one web application security risk uh, in the world. And we see it being exploited over and over and over again. We like we still have not fixed this problem. Uh, through to misconfigurations, like literally you have no password on your database and it's facing the world. But for that sort of thing to happen, you normally have to have a series of events go wrong. I mean, you okay, you have to not put a password in your database. That's one thing. But secondly, databases like that really shouldn't be sitting there just facing the world. They should be firewalled off and you know, in a private network somewhere. So those sort of things continue to go wrong. But I guess the the bit of sympathy that I have for these organizations as well is that we have so many moving parts in software now. There are so many different services and so many people responsible for managing them. It requires sort of a really mature organization in many ways to get these things right. And and that doesn't necessarily mean a a big organization with a lot of money because we see Equifax, for example, have a major data breach. And and the Equifax data breach only happened because a whole series of different things went wrong and the planets aligned and the rest is history. So is another reason for this, though, and I keep coming back to this, and is that there are really no repercussions for screwing it up. I mean, look at Equifax. They had a huge, massive data breach of really awesome information for identity thieves. Nothing happened. And not only that, but I'm not their customer. I didn't choose Equifax. There's nothing, I couldn't take my business elsewhere. Isn't that part of the problem is that there's, there's, there's not incentivized to get it right? I think it depends on, on how you look at it. And you can kind of argue it both ways. You can certainly make that argument that, that, you know, that there's just not enough disincentive and nothing really bad happened. 
On the other hand, the CEO lost his job. The CISO lost her job as well. Uh, some people, I believe, are going to jail for insider trading or certainly facing criminal charges. I mean, the insider trading thing's a little right. bit parallel. That was, yes, that's just parallel. All right, that's that was, but yeah. that's just a mess. That, yes, but, um, you know, there are, there are certainly severe ramifications for executives, but I suspect the court of public opinion would sort of say, oh, CEO lost their job, probably walked out with a hundred million bucks or whatever it is as well. Like, you know, maybe that's not like sufficient punishment. So I, I could sort of understand that. Uh, it, it's interesting to sort of look at, at the way regulations differ around the world as well. And mm-hmm. uh, Europe last year got some fairly severe regulations in their general data protection regulation right. or, or GDPR, where an organization now can be fined up to 4% of their gross annual worldwide turnover. Uh, and, and suddenly it's like, well, actually, that's a lot of money because right. previously the, the fines have often just been, they've just been ridiculous. And I'll, I'll give you a good example. There's a company in the UK called TalkTalk. Talk. Uh, they're a large telco. And they had a big data breach in 2015. Uh, and it was a massive news story. It turned out to be perpetrated li- literally by children. So there's a 17-year-old. <laughs> in fact, there's a photo of a 17-year-old walking out of court. You can't see his face because he's literally a child. Oh, so, you know, you, you get a child able to do this amount of damage. Uh, and their information commissioner's office over there leveled the largest ever fine handed out to a UK company at them which was £400,000. Now, this is a company with revenue of £1.8 billion a year, and you get a £400,000 fine. Uh, and to put that in context, if you earn $100,000 a year, this is like getting a $20 fine. You know, like it's lunch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, if, if you get fined your lunch, are you going to do it again? Uh, well, it's not a lot of disincentive. But then the other metric there is Talk Talk says it costs them forty-two million pounds. The, the, the incident in its entirety, mm. you know, everything from uh, identity theft protection for people, and and the, the security companies had to come in and clean up the mess. I, I don't know if that includes sort of reputation damage and other losses and things like that. But certainly, it's a lot more than just the regulatory cost itself. But I, I think we all feel that a you know twenty dollar fine for someone earning a hundred grand a year is is not really that. It doesn't really have teeth. Right, for sure. I think, thankfully, at least some of the GDPR, even though I'm, I don't know how likely it is we'll have something like that here in the U.S., or and I don't know, do you have anything similar to G- GDPR in Australia, either looming or oh, recently geez. passed? <laughs> <laughs> so, last year, we finally got our mandatory data breach disclosure laws, which is called the, the Notifiable Data Breach Scheme in Australia. And it's it's better than not having one, <laughs> but yeah. it's really, really weak. And there's sort of three things that just continue to, to stick out to me and many others in there. And one of them is is that it's it's only a notifiable data breach if we're talking about an organization that has turnover of more than three million Australian dollars a year. Uh, now that is less than 10% of Aussie businesses. It's also only notifiable data breach if the organization believes it's likely to cause serious harm to the subject matter. Uh, and there are a number of different tests for this, but none of those tests include things like you've lost usernames and passwords and people have reused them everywhere else. So, you know, you might be running like a cat forum or something like that, which is fine. <laughs> and, and you go, oh, it's usernames and passwords. It's not going to cause serious harm. Well, no, it, it is because that's the username and password for your bank account and for your eBay and everything else. Right. And then the, the, the third thing that's a bit wacky with this one is that whereas in the case of like GDPR, you've got 72 hours to report a breach to the local regulator, uh, Australia's gone, ah, oh, you know, like people, people are busy, they're down the beach, they've got things to do here, we'll give them a month. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I'd, I lament the fact that, that I can sort of be sitting there with my European mates and, and they get all of these protections under EU law and I don't get them under Aussie law. 
But you know, look, we have something now. It's a starting point. Hopefully, we'll get more alignment with with uh, Europe in the future. Yeah, and I'm you know, and some of that stuff is actually spilling out because of these are global companies, and and a lot of them are just make the decision if i'm gonna to have to do this for europe i may as well do it everywhere so in some cases we're getting a little bit of rub off from that a little bit of benefit from from that but we you know i know that in the u.s we have trouble with that too because the way the courts are kind of set up and the way these class action lawsuits are set up you have to kind of be able to prove that you've been harmed and a lot of times by the time you've been harmed it's too late and then a lot of times it's there's no way to tell that the reason my identity you know was stolen was because of the equifax equifax breach um, so that you know, yeah. being able to prove standing is something that, that, that defeats a lot of these class action lawsuits and therefore, you know, yet another reason why there's no repercussions. So, I mean, this is another one of those sort of double-edged swords thing. And, and I often have lawyers get in touch with me uh, after a data breach, Yeah, sometimes literally within 24 hours of a data breach. Uh, and say, you know, we're doing a class action lawsuit. And uh, like, I'm sorry, but if lawyers start contacting you within 24 hours, this is not like, hey, we've suddenly had like a rush of people really worried about their personal safety. It's it, as far as I'm concerned, it becomes a real money grab. Mm, sure. And, you know, like you make a good point in terms of demonstrating harm, but I'll, I'll give you a good example of, of where this just gets exploited. Uh, there was a, a data breach of a Hong Kong toy maker called VTech. This is probably mm-hmm. four yep. years ago or something now. I remember that. And VTech lost millions of, well, actually, let, let's not use the word lost. Someone broke in through a vulnerability in VTech systems, which should never have been there, took out millions of records uh, about parents' contact information, also children's names, photos, birth dates, and references back to the parents with their physical address. So like, like, like really, really bad stuff. Mm. So one person took it out, gave it to a very reputable journalist, that reputable journalist gave it to me to analyze, and there were three of us in the world that had this data. Uh, and in the wash-up of that, I end up having chats with everyone from VTech lawyers through to law enforcement, uh, all very, very positive chats too, mind you. And, and it ended up that we said, look, let, let's just try and delete every single trace of this we have. And I certainly did that on my side. They arrested someone in the UK, and, and I'm sure the journalist did the right thing too. So now you, you've had this incident, which shouldn't have been there, but there is no data circulating around and people are trying to mount class action lawsuits. Mm. And to your point about the damage, I'm 99 point something percent sure that there was no damage to anyone. So why are you mounting a lawsuit? Interesting. You know, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I want the regulator to throw right. the book at them over this because this was crazy, particularly when kids are involved. Yeah, yeah. But you can't be suing for damages when there are no damages. And, and as I understand it, I think those class action lawsuits actually failed, which is a good thing. But you can sort of see how it muddies the water as oh, well, yeah. where we've got people saying, you know, look, I want to sue for damages. Or, by the way, I don't have any damages. <laughs> yeah, that's a great counterpoint. I'd never heard that story that from that angle anyway. That's that's really interesting. So is there a way for the average consumer, certainly the non-technical consumer, to compare the relative security of these services and companies that might want to give data to? So if I'm actually, if I'm wanting the, the invisible hand of the market to work and, I, and I'm the informed consumer, can I really, is there really anything I can do to pick a company or not pick a company because I think they may or may not be less, more likely to lose my data in a data breach? I mean, my point, I think, is that there is no way, but I'd like to hear your opinion. No, <laughs> there's no way. So, honestly, that's how simple the answer is. I, it, it's, it's funny, actually. So I often have people say to me, oh, you run this Have I Been Pwned site. Why should I trust you with my data? Mm-hmm. And I say, all right, first of all, it's an email address. 
the only way email addresses even work is you give them to other people. You know, mm. unless you do that, you can't mm. actually do anything with an email address. Also, when you go to Have I Been Pwned, you'll see how all of these big companies that you trusted with it have actually lost the data. You know, I mentioned LinkedIn and Dropbox and all these sorts of organisations. And the, the reality of it is, is that you, me as well for that matter, have absolutely no way of assessing how likely an organisation is to lose your data when you give it to them. So, so you have to sort of take this defensive position of, of making the assumption that sooner or later, everyone's going to screw it up mm-hmm. somehow. Uh, so, so what does that mean in terms of your behavior? Well, uh, okay, with passwords, I use a password manager and I make them strong and unique and I don't reuse them and I use two-factor authentication. Uh, with the other data I provide people, I only give data that I absolutely positively need to, to give them. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to give you my birth date for some random forum because a birth date is a right. piece of identity verification information. Yep. Uh, I don't particularly want to give you my home address if I don't need to. Uh, and, and frankly, I, I even I even lament sort of handing over my passport when I walk into a hotel somewhere. It's like, yeah, why right. do you want my passport? Because, hey, Marriott and Starwood yeah. just happened and yeah. they lost a whole bunch of this data. And, you know, unfortunately, we, we're sort of in this, this phase where organizations look at personal data as an asset they want to collect as much of it as possible because it's valuable to them yes and they never look at it as a liability but it it is both yeah that is a very good point and that's uh yes that's something i that i've that i've talked about several times as well and it's and it's part of a lot of the gdpr and some of the laws that are being thrown around here in the u.s is the minimization and, and apple tim cook of apple called this out recently as well and the minimization of data collection and and it's getting away from that notion of collecting as much as possible because it might be useful someday uh, and and seeing it uh, as a liability and just kind of as a, as a responsibility for these companies toward their their, you know, their customers to not collect anything that you know need to know <laughs> only tell me what i need to know and no more uh but we you know obviously we've got a ways to go before we get to that point well, I mean, Apple's a really interesting example here where for, for several years now, they've sort of been carving out their reputation as a, as a privacy-centric mm-hmm. company. Uh, and they've been in the news the last few days because they're going to start really cracking down on applications that right, yeah. are doing extensive tracking of, of the way you interact with applications, which I think is, is a positive thing. Of, of course, the, the, the counter-argument here from many organizations is that, that those usage patterns and the user profiling and the personal data they do treat as an asset. It has value. They sell that. They monetize it. Right. So it's it's going to sort of be interesting to see how things unfold over time. And I, you know, there's, it's there are very powerful organizations on the one hand that want to have all that data, and then there's there's very sort of privacy centric initiatives on the other side. Well, and and I think it's important, and I'm glad you brought it up. It's so important to realize that this is a two sided coin. This double edged sword. There are, if if let let's say in an ideal utopian society where this data could be protected uh, and isn't, you know, bandied about and sold without your knowledge and et cetera, et cetera. There are some really amazing things that we could do by collecting all this data. I mean, it, it's just having all this data would allow us to do some really positive things for society, for individuals. Uh, you know, sometimes I give the example of her, the movie, her, I don't know if you've seen that with Joaquin Phoenix, but you know, he's got this little earpiece, but he's got this AI that he kind of falls in love with. Eventually. I don't want to give too many spoilers, but he's trusted this AI with everything. I mean, this this thing knows everything about it. But I mean, if in the in the ideal scenario where that person is on his side, this AI, you know, they're not giving it away. That person can now help him with all sorts of things because he knows she knows everything about him. But of course, the flip side of that is, if you collect that and you can't keep hold of it, then you know you got problems. Yeah, yeah, and, and this is, I, I sort of can't see us going in any direction other than having more data than ever before. 
Uh, and, you know, if, even if you just think about everything sort of personal fitness trackers through to the fact mm. that your TV is connected and everyone's got a home assist, like we're going to have more data than ever before. And there are some good reasons for it, too. I mean, I certainly love my connected techie things. I think they're fantastic. Uh, but we, we've really got to sort of be thinking about the longer term ramifications. Yeah. On the other hand, as well, the, the generational, I guess, tolerance for personal data and sharing mm. is changing, too. And yeah, you know, I, I got onto the internet in sort of the, the mid '90s, just as I reached adulthood, and mm-hmm. I have enough recollection of a time where we were we weren't sharing everything. But there are, you know, I think about my kids; like they're going to have a very really right. different tolerance to the amount of information they share because they've just never known a different time. So maybe what's going to happen over time is that the, you know the, the older guard will sort of, let's face it, die, and then the yeah. newer ones will come in, and they've just got a really different sensitivity, and and it's just going to change the landscape of how we treat data privacy. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder about that too. I've got two daughters. I, you know, I try to tell them, you know, anything you put out there is going to be the forever. So be careful. <laughs> um, all right. So let's, let's wrap things up a little with some practical matters. So let's, let's talk about how to use your site. So uh, let's say, you know, I'm worried that there was, there's been another data breach and whether or not I've been, in, you know, contacted by that, you know, that company saying I'm affected. I'm still worried that I might be, or maybe I'm just generally worried. And I want to go, I've learned about your site. Have I been pwned.com? And I, I go there. What now, now what, how do I use your site effectively? So there's really sort of two parts to it. So one is that the front page of Have I Been Pwned has uh, an email address field. You put in an email address, comes back, it tells you where it's been exposed. Uh, maybe it's nowhere. Maybe it's like my old address and it's been in like 15 different places. Mm. There's also a feature there where you can say, look, let me know if it appears somewhere else in the future in, in a subsequent data breach. And that just sends you a verification email. You click the link, it's good to go. Uh, and of course, it's all free as well. It's a community-centric thing. So there's that piece. There's also a password piece. And I, I kind of lamented this a little bit because it, it ultimately boils down to checking if a password has been exposed somewhere. Mm. But one of the one of the interesting initiatives that's sort of happening in the industry is is we're moving more towards recognizing that, that data breaches are a thing. They expose passwords. Let us try and maybe not use those passwords <laughs> anymore once they've been exposed, like mm. regardless of how good they were. Maybe it's like all of your dogs and children's names together. <laughs> you know, like yeah. if it's been exposed, that's probably not something you want to use. So there's a password search feature and it. it has an anonymity model behind it. So your password never actually gets sent to the service, but it allows you to see if it's been exposed somewhere. Uh, and, and the kind of cool thing about that is a lot of organizations are now building this into their registration flow and into their login flow. Uh, where they take the passwords people right. are providing uh, to the site, they anonymize it, they send it to Have I Been Pwned. And there's about seven or eight million requests a day from various organizations oh, wow. today just to check whether it's appeared somewhere before. Uh, and then what these services are doing is, is they're hitting that, that service and they're coming back and they're saying, hey, anything from, just so you know, this password has appeared in a breach before, maybe you don't want to use it through to in some cases just saying no like this password's been seen 50,000 times before (laughs) you should not be using this well and and I, you know, I, I published this list, you know, in various locations of my book and other places that are now famous for any, at least people in our industry, the, the famous, you know, 100 worst passwords every year. And of course, what those passwords are, it's not, it's the passwords that have been leaked. Otherwise, we wouldn't know of them. But, but you know, password is still like the number one, pa- P-A-S-S-W-R-D is like still the number one password or the number two every year, along with one, two, three, four, five, six. I would think that at least, at the very least, that list would be a place to start to tell people, you know, the automated services, when I'm trying to set a password, they're like, eh, no, you can't use that one because everybody uses that one. 
Do you see that starting to happen as well? Are they starting to use that? Oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah, and, and this is what they're using the Have I Been Pwned data for. There's 550 million passwords in this in this repository from previous locations. And w- one of the things that, that, that I'm really trying to drive in, in the industry, and, and I guess just to sort of take a step back for a moment, I think the solution to a lot of these issues is that there's a shared responsibility between both uh, individuals mm, yes. and organisations yes. to do security better. So individuals have the freedom to, to choose uh, pretty much whatever password they want and whether they reuse it and whether they turn on two-factor. Organisations are in a position of responsibility where they can help sort of lead people down the path of success. And one of the things I'm really trying to get organisations away from is this traditional mathematical view of password strength. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that the mathematical view is if you have more character types and if you have more length, then the password is better because the entropy increases. So what ends up happening is someone says, well, okay, I want to meet the minimum password criteria. So I'm going to use the word password as a password, but I'm going to capitalize the P. I'm going to put an at symbol instead of the A, and I'm going to change the the O to a zero, and it's eight characters long. So now I have uppercase, lowercase, non-alphanumeric, eight characters, job done. (laughs) And and you look at it and you go, but this is a terrible password. Well, yes, it's a terrible password, but only because our human brains can recognize the pattern within it. So this is where we sort of got to get away from the mathematical side. And there are still loads of websites out there where you could go and generate a pass phrase. So this is like four totally random dictionary Mm -hmm. words in a totally random order. You know, you think about the number of different possibilities there are with that. But you can't use that password because... You didn't have an uppercase character. You know? right, or right, in yeah. some cases, you can't use that password because it has a space. So right. we're really trying to get away from this very archaic way of thinking and, and take a much more sort of pragmatic evidence-based way to uh, how we help people create good passwords. So that actually leads me to a question. I'm glad you said that because it tripped this and I've always wanted to know this question. I'm wondering if you know the answer. When you enter passwords, if it's done correctly, the passwords aren't stored as passwords. They're hashed and stored, which, you know, it's this mathematical kind of munging that we were kind of alluding to earlier, where it's not, they don't, if they're doing it correctly, they're not storing the actual password. And yet some of these sites still say you can only, you can't use that character. <laughs> what do they care? If it's hashed, <laughs> what, I mean, why does that even matter? Well, it's a very good question. And there's probably sort of, two traditional problems with the way password restrictions uh, were put in place. So, so one of the traditional problems was if the password was going to be redisplayed to an operator, there'd be restrictions. Uh, now, a good example here is that you'll see websites say, well, you can't use angle brackets. So, well, hang on a second. So angle brackets are what we use for HTML, which is what's mm-hmm. behind every web page. So are you going to be putting that on a web page? And that's, that's your, your uh, I guess, criteria for blocking it. And then by the same token, there are many websites out there that say, we have a list of naughty words. You cannot Mm -hmm. use a naughty word. And you're looking at it going, well, like what, is the website going to get offended? No, there's an (laughs) operator somewhere that's going to read that later on and they don't want to see an offensive word. So, you know, we've got that side of things uh, where passwords are are obviously being redisplayed. And that's why the restrictions are there. And then we've got things like there are characters such as, uh, say, apostrophes. You know, we don't want you to use apostrophes, or sometimes we don't even want you to use the word select, which is used mm. in database queries because people are worried about attacks against the database. Now, you're totally right. We're in both these cases. If that is the rationale and that's the basis for blocking those characters, well, then the passwords are not being cryptographically hashed right. or stored correctly. Now, I suspect in some cases they actually are, but then there's legacy things that have Mm. carried that forward. 
but you know that the, the we sort of have this like thin veneer <laughs> of the security posture of an organization which is what we view in the browser mm-hmm. and when this is what you see then people do draw conclusions that that don't look real good for the organization yeah okay so how how comprehensive and up to date is the information you have? And I'll bring up a specific example. You alluded to the, or you mentioned the 733 million uh, passwords that, that came through recently. And that's part of what the they were calling Collection One. And uh, then there were mm. Collections Two through Five that were dumped shortly mm-hmm. after that, which is I think almost three times as big. Uh, and I noticed I just checked your website uh, earlier today before we got on, and it doesn't list that yet. Um, are you basically at this point at the mercy of someone delivering that to you and that's why it's not there or does it just take a long time for it to process? And in general speaking, how up to date, how, how up to date is your database with the, the breaches? I have the data and it's not about three times the size, it's about 10 times the size. It's, wow. Uh, it's, uh, it's ginormous. Altogether, the data is around about uh, a terabyte and collection one was, I think, about 83 gigabytes. So to be honest, I'm, I'm sort of lamenting the rationale of just continually loading mass <laughs> volumes of collated lists. And, and there's a few reasons for this. So I loaded this collection one data uh, three weeks ago. In fact, I loaded it on a Thursday three weeks ago in the morning my time. And now the morning my time is when everyone else around the world's going to bed. So I had a peaceful day. And then I got on a plane to fly to Europe that afternoon. And it's just like the gates of hell opened <laughs> on my email account. And I, uh, I, I spent the flight from, from Brisbane to Dubai and then Dubai through to Oslo just just battling emails oh and I, I literally got thousands of emails and hundreds of blog comments thousands of tweets <laughs> it just got absolutely inundated and there are a whole range of different responses to this and it unfortunately it was made even worse by the media picking mm. it up and just fundamentally misrepresenting things now mind you i wrote like a three and a half thousand word blog post i was not going to leave any stone unturned like every detail was in there but still <laughs> things yeah. got very misrepresented and then, of course, people popped up and said, hey, did you know there's these other collections? So I've grabbed those and I've been analyzing them. And I do have a draft blog post about what I intend to do with them. But the, I guess the bit that I'm lamenting here is that where does it end? Because yeah. there's the other collections, but there's also another list someone sent me that had another 13 billion records in them. Oh, my goodness. Now, do, and, and, you know, <sighs> what happens tomorrow if someone takes those two lists and they combine them together? And there's a, there's a 20 billion. Like, where... Does it end? It's one thing to say this discrete, clearly identifiable organization had a data breach and this is their data and we can verify it. It's another thing to say, look, there's just a great big collated list floating around. Uh, so you mentioned that you could subscribe to your service and you could, if you go and search for your email address and don't find it, you might breathe a sigh of relief. But if you'd like to be notified, you can do that. So uh, would you recommend that if people are concerned about this, that you know, I, I, like I must have 12 email addresses personally, uh, maybe mm. most people don't have that many. But if, if you would you just go and register every email address you, uh, you're worried about and, and would that be a good preventative thing? Would you recommend people do that? Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, maybe preventative is not the right word because it doesn't stop it from happening. Sure, but yeah. it's it's not it's knowledge, right? And it's awareness. And I think for the most part, people want to know what's being done with their data. And, and that was sort of a large part of the reason why I loaded the Collection 1 data. It's like, well, you know, did you know that your data is being circulated as part of a list and they're trying to break into your account using a previously used password? So I think that that's, that's good, useful information for people. Uh, now, of course, if, if they do then learn about an incident, they've got to decide what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frankly, if look, if they're using strong, unique passwords, in, in 90% plus of cases, that solves the problem. 
if you're on Ashley Madison, it doesn't solve that problem. You know, like that's a yeah. different problem. But yeah, that, look, that's that's a good start and it's awareness, right? So do you also have this option for opting out? Uh, explain what that is and why someone mm. might want to do that. Yeah, so the premise of opting out is that you may not want to be publicly searchable. Uh, and there's a whole debate here about, look, should it be opt out by default or not? And there are some really fundamental technical reasons why I can't do that. And I have written about it. There's actually a blog post called The Ethics of Running a Data Breach uh, Service, hmm. which explains why. But what the opt out does is it lets you say, look, I, I want to remove myself from public visibility so that other people can no longer find me. I do still store the email address because I want to make sure that if there's a subsequent data breach, then you're not inadvertently opted back in. Mm -hmm. But it does remove you from that public visibility, but it still allows you, if you control the email address, to come back and see where you've been exposed. So devil's advocate, if I'm a hacker, can I use your site for my benefit in any way? Well, you would be able to use it to see where people have been exposed. Uh, so, for example, you could put my email address in and see that I've got a LinkedIn account and a Dropbox account and these sorts of things. And, you know, that's that's always going to be a risk, right, because that is a disclosure. Um, if we put it in context, there are sort of other reasons why that's maybe not as bad as it sounds on the surface. And one of the reasons is if you're a hacker genuinely interested in doing this stuff, a lot of these data breaches are really easily accessible anyway. Mm. Uh, so you could go and pull down, for example, we just mentioned these collections. They're literally being shared on Twitter. Uh, you go into a Twitter search, you'll find it very, very quickly, and you'll pull down billions and billions of records anyway. There's also enumeration vectors in pretty much all these services. Uh, if you really want to know whether someone has an account on Ashley Madison, you, you can't find out on Have I Been Pwned, but you can find out on Ashley Madison mm -hmm. because a lot of these services disclose the presence of an account through, uh, if not password reset, then registration or other vectors such as timing attacks against the login facility. So a lot of the time this information is discoverable anyway. And now that's not to say that I'm not conscious of the fact that this is sort of one consolidated vector by which this can be discovered. But on balance, and a lot of this is detailed in that blog post as well, the ability to make this information discoverable publicly is also really valuable. And I mean, just one example of many here is that there are a lot of online organizations that use this as part of the support process where someone says, look, uh, let, let's say they have a Spotify account. Hey, Spotify, someone's just taken over my account. Uh, you guys have been hacked. Uh, and Spotify can sort of look at that email address and go, well, hey, just, just so you know, like you've actually been in these other data breaches. Is there any chance that you've reused your password? Mm. You know, so mm -hmm. it kind of helps people join the dots as well. Oh, sure. Uh, and so you've you earlier ticked off the, you know, if we were going to recommend to people what they do to protect themselves proactively for things that we you, you mentioned using a password manager uh, so that you can have unique, long, strong, crazy, random passwords that you don't have to remember for each site. Uh, and two-factor authentication, which means there's got, you know, the second step and defense in depth that um, keeps people out of those things. Uh, mm. First of all, is there anything else? And second of all, are there any particular password managers you can recommend? So yeah, maybe to start with the last question first, I use a password manager called 1Password, which is made by a company called Agile Bits. And I've used them for, I think, about eight years now. Uh, and, and I chose them because they worked across all my devices. I have mm -hmm. iPhone, iPad, and PCs, and everything sort of syncs nicely. I use the family sharing facility there so that I can exchange things with my wife and, and now my kids as they start getting a little bit older. Uh, so I'm very, very happy with that product. And then in addition to that, I, I obviously turn on two-factor authentication, as, as discussed earlier on. Uh, I have a, a Google account as well, and I've got this advanced protection program that uses uh, universal two-factor keys, which is a really, really slick implementation. Mm -hmm. Like if you want to lock down your Gmail, 
absolutely beautiful setup. Uh, it can't be fished like other mechanisms of 2FA, things like uh, authenticator tokens, which are great in terms of cost effectiveness, can still be fished. Uh, U2F keys can't, so that they're a really positive thing. And, you know, like I said earlier on, just being conscious of what I share. Like, I'm just not going to share information that I don't positively have to anymore. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've often told people, like one of the classes I teach, that uh, there's no reason you can't lie <laughs> in, a lot of, you know, in a lot of cases where they're asking for their information. I mean, you know, for, for your date, what they usually want to know is if you're a minor or not uh, in a lot of cases. So just give them a, you know, give them a birth date that makes you not a minor. Uh, if they're asking other things like, you know, even on the uh, the questions, like the security questions, which hopefully we'll get away from. But there's still a lot of sites that, you know, at, you know have you answer three questions. You don't have to give them the truth. Yeah, You know, you could give them a lie as long as you remember what that lie is and you put that like say in your password manager so that when they ask them again you can know what your lie was uh that's always that's something to talk about too um so you actually have uh, and i'm sure that's no coincidence since you like one password you've actually integrated with one password and they're actually using your service uh are there anybody is there anybody else using yours uh your service are you looking for any other integrations i know google chrome is starting to do this too but i don't think it's in uh with you i think it's just their own thing so Google Chrome has, has just done their password checker. This launched a, a couple of days before recording. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've had some chats with them and they gave me a heads up on it. And I, I think that they're, what they're doing is really good insofar as th this is more awareness for people. And Google mm -hmm. obviously has rather a, a sizable audience. <laughs> so yeah. if they can yeah. do this and sort of bring this, this knowledge to the forefront, that's awesome. Uh, Mozilla has integrated Have I Been Pwned with their Firefox monitor service. So you can go to monitor.firefox.com uh, and all of that sits on top of Have I Been Pwned. So, you know, again, it's it, it's Firefox. Like they've got massive audience, mm -hmm. uh, a massive audience. And, and that's, that's great because it can bring the data to the masses more. And then because there's an API ecosystem, there's, I don't even know how many <laughs> different yeah. organizations out there that have integrated it into, you know, everything from identity theft protection products through to password managers. And, you know, that's great. Like, I want to see the data used as broadly as possible to make positive changes. Well, it's so great that what you're doing, and it's been such a huge help for everybody. And I hope that the audience goes and checks this out and spreads the word because it's one of those tools that could really be helpful, you know, maybe to give you peace of mind to know that maybe you weren't part of a breach or to give you the heads up that, you know, maybe you should do something, especially if you're the kind of person like most of us are that reuse passwords. Maybe this will finally, you know, push you to go out there and get a password manager and start using unique passwords. So thank you so much for doing what you do. And thank you again for coming on the show. This has been really, really uh, entertaining and very enlightening. Thanks. Thanks, Troy. My pleasure. Thanks again to Troy Hunt for coming on the show. That was a really enlightening interview. Very much enjoyed that. Uh, Troy's doing some great work for us out there, and we uh, very much appreciate what he's done with HaveIBeenPwned.com. And hopefully that site will be around for time for a long time to come because certainly data breaches aren't going anywhere, unfortunately. Uh, so it's a really great service, and I'm glad to see that that's starting to get integrated into other services as well. Hopefully we can start you know, using some of these things that we know about bad passwords and rejecting passwords when people try to choose those and forcing them to choose something better. In the meantime, make sure you're using a password manager like 1Password or LastPass, where you can generate some just crazy random passwords, ones that you'll never have to remember because the password manager does that for you. So feel free to generate total gibberish uh, that will be absolutely impossible to guess uh, and let the password manager do its work for you. Uh, and also two-factor authentication is huge for all of your major, major accounts, for everything that's important. And that includes your social media and email accounts. Make sure that you turn on two-factor authentication where you can. And, uh, of course, I recommend Authy uh, now <laughs> as your 
uh, two-factor authentication app. Um, if you really want to get crazy, as you talked about, you could use uh, like a Yubico key. Uh, that's Y-U-B-I-C-O. Uh, that would require that everywhere you go uh, that you want to log into someplace, you have to have this USB key with you. And you have to plug it into a USB port on the computer that you're on in order to authenticate. So for some people, that's a little bit much. Uh, but if you really want to lock things down, that is pretty much the gold standard at this point. And that's going to wrap up our show. As always, please check out, uh, you can check out my blog at firewallsdontstopdragons.com. Uh, you could also sign up for my bi-weekly newsletter, which is every two weeks. It uh, generally covers the same topics as the blogs, but not always. Uh, you could sign up and have that uh, tip, kind of the tip of the week kind of thing sent directly to your mailbox. And of course, the book firewallsdontstopdragons.com, which we just gave away in the contest. You can buy your very own copy if you didn't win uh, from amazon.com. It's got well over 150 tips, all with step-by-step -step instructions and pictures and explanations about why it's important if you care to read that. Look for another interview coming up soon about artificial intelligence. That will be very interesting. And there will certainly be news to talk about. So we have, always have something to talk about on the show. So until then, stay safe and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>